and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch. Um, this is the solo episode, The Ruminant, what used to be known as The uh, Smoking Car, because I used to do it smoking in my car until we got all these fancy doodads and and coin-operated recording devices. Um, uh, so I'm recording again late on a Thursday because I still haven't figured out how to do this on Fridays and do the Dispatch podcast and the G-File and all the other things I got to do on the same day. Um, so where to begin? First, another apology to uh, both Wisconsinites and to Minnesotans for saying... Um, uh, in the first episode of The Remnant this week with Brian Riedel, that Wisconsin was the land of 10,000 lakes. Um, I did say I was hungover, and, um, um, but it was still an unforgivable mistake. I have Yakuza-style removed the tip of my left pinky as penance. I apologize, um, and um, I hope that that is the worst error I make in all of 2022. Um, so, uh, oh, why was I hungover? I was hungover because uh, Monday was my uh, birthday, and um, my wife, um, the fair Jessica, uh, surprised me. Um, I thought we were going to have a, a special dinner at home. You know, we are empty nesters now, and um, instead she. Um, told me I had to make a martini shaker and get a, a jacket because we were going out and we got in a Uber and we rode to Baltimore and I uh, had martinis on the way and then met uh, uh, dear old friends of mine, uh, the McLucases at uh, totally by surprise for me um, at the top of the four seasons in Baltimore, which is a really a fantastic venue. And we um, continued to imbibe there. And then uh, my wife and I went out to a lovely, lovely dinner um, in downtown Baltimore. I really should have confirmed the name of it. Um, Charlotte, I think it is. Really fantastic restaurant. Um, and then came home. And I uh, got to say, always surprised at how built up that part of Baltimore is. Because you know, as you know, I went to school in Baltimore, well, Baltimore County, um, technically in Towson, Maryland, but um, Baltimore, we were just outside of Baltimore, and I lived in Baltimore for a while. Um, I have lots, I had lots of friends for about 10 years in Baltimore. I love that town, and um, but my memory of a lot of the built-up stuff um, down there, um, the, a lot of those areas, uh, it was much more like The Wire than it is today, and so it's kind of wild to see. Um, I think... Baltimore gets a really bad rap um, as a city, um, and it's got a great history. It was one of the four original cities of the Social Register, I believe, um, and it is much more of a real city in many ways than D.C., although that's changed. I mean, D.C. has become more of a full, fully realized city than it was even when I came here. But like in the 1960s, Michael Barone writes about this in his book, Our Country, um, if you wanted to go out to a fancy restaurant 
and you lived in Washington, D.C. in the 60s, um, um, you went to Baltimore. Um, because this really was sort of a cultural backwater. Or was it JFK who said it was, um, it had, um, it was a city of northern charm and southern efficiency? Something like that. And, um, you know, Baltimore was, um, you know, it was one of the first places I ever spent any, it was the first place I ever spent any time in where you kind of had, um, social integration, um, vertically and horizontally in the sense that you could go to a bar and there'd be bikers in there and there'd be guys in jackets and ties, um, and that kind of thing. And, um, I think it deserves the label charm city. I don't know how great it's doing these days in terms of its former charms. Cause I just haven't, I don't spend that much time there, but it was fun to go back anyway. Um, enough of all of that. I am not hung over now. Um, go talk to me tomorrow morning. Um, where to begin. So, um, yesterday I wrote, uh, the, um, members only G file, um, about sort of playing off of my LA times column from earlier in the week about media bias. And just to quickly rehash, um, I spent, you know, most of my professional life, you know, writing and complaining about, um, liberal media bias. Um, uh, you know, and I grew up, my dad, who was a newspaper man in the sense that he ran news syndicates that, you know, were central to newspapers for most of the first two thirds of the 20th century. And he wrote for newspapers himself. Um, um, you know, and he always used to joke that he, you know, spent his career working behind enemy lines. Um, back when that was a funny joke rather than the sort of like Manichaean kind of, um, rhetoric you hear today about the media. I mean, like the number of people who, including supposed intellectuals who think that they have rebutted an argument I'm making by saying, you know, I'm with CNN is really kind of remarkable to me that people think this is a mature, serious argument to make. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's just sort of pandering to the, um, the, the unserious people who unseriously think it's a serious argument. Um, and, um, I'm not saying those people are unserious about everything in their lives. I just think that they're unserious about how they think about politics. I mean, there was a time when people thought it was worthwhile to have a conservative at a, at a liberal outlet, um, in order to, you know, proselytize and make the case, make serious cases for conservatism to audiences that aren't subjected to them. And I kind of think that's still what a grown up position is, but you know, people will differ because we live in this kind of crazy tribal time. But anyway, you know, I grew up with this stuff, you know, my dad used to, I think I've talked about this before, but you know, my dad used to rant about in his very sort of nebbishy Jewish intellectual way about how the New York times would insist on referring to Fidel Castro as Dr. Castro. Um, even though he only had a law degree and I understand that in parts of South America and all that kind of stuff, people call, um, um, uh, you know, people with, with various advanced degrees, doctor and all that kind of stuff. But it was a violation of the times own style guide, um, which they just did out of a sort of a suck upiness to, to Castro. Um, and, uh, you know, so I mean, I, I can do the full, you know, going back to Walter Durante and Herbert Matthews and all that kind of stuff. And Daniel Shore and Walter Cronkite and Dan rather before the fall, 
you know, before he climbed up the jackass tree and fell down hitting every branch on the way. Um, I think liberal media bias was a real thing, but you can kind of see, you know, it's the progression of where that argument has gone over the last 20 years. If you look at stuff like the Media Research Center, um, I like some of those guys. I used to rely on their stuff quite a bit, but the Media Research Center used to, which is this conservative media watchdog thing. I don't know if accuracy in media still exists, but that used to be another thing on the right. And, you know, it used to be that a lot of it, their focus from that sort of crowd was um, on the biases of coverage. And now a lot of it is just, look at what this dumb liberal pundit said. And dumb liberal pundits sometimes say dumb things. Sometimes smart liberal pundits say dumb things. And sometimes smart liberal pundits say things that sound dumb if taken out of context and, and all the rest. And um, but like, it's not media watchdogging in my book. If you're just getting into arguments about differences of opinion about politics, um, it's just sort of a changing thing. And, you know, and so I kind of had this revelation because I've grown so, so, so weary of the liberal media argument, um, because, uh, it's become this. Um, it's metastasized at precisely the moment that the influence and power of the liberal media started to come apart at the seams. Um, you know, the, there was a time when fighting against liberal media bias was really sort of speaking truth to power, where you were talking about a fairly hegemonic thing um, that was um, in control of, you know, the media narrative, um, uh, for decades, you know, from the late, call it the late thirties, early forties, straight through to, you know, the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. And then in large part because of Rush Limbaugh and National Review and the rise of, and particularly the rise of the internet and cable and especially Fox news, that monopoly started to come apart and, um, it became possible for politi Republican politicians and conservatives to get their arguments out to the broader public without having to put them through the filter of the New York Times or the Washington Post. And, um, and yet, even as the mainstream media was getting weaker, the, uh, not only the anger, but the, the sort of populist rage that assumed that the media was running everything, the liberal media was running everything, got stronger. And, um, I mean, I could do this for a long time. I'm not going to wallow in rehashing all of this. Um, but I think part of what's going on was that it's a demographic thing. There were a lot of people my age and older were sort of the backbone of the, um, um, Republican base who grew up in that world. And when they finally started hearing the, you know, politicians, attacking the liberal media it was music to their ears because they waited so long for it i mean people forget how popular you know how much good politically george hw bush did for himself when he swapped at um dan rather in that live interview and it's you know part of the story of that live interview and i, I want to say 87 was that he insisted i think on the advice of roger ailes i'm not positive about that but i think that's right um that he do it live for the precise reason that uh, rather and CBS wouldn't be able to edit out um, what, what Bush had to say. And that sort of that more than almost anything else revived his standing as a sort of 
true conservative back then because people forget Reagan originally picked um, George H.W. Bush to unite the party between the sort of moderate Republican faction and the sort of Goldwaterite faction or wings, if you prefer. And uh, so anyway, it was a long time in coming. We saw in 2012 how Newt Gingrich sort of turned every debate question into an attack on the media and it almost got him the nomination. Um, Sarah Palin was loved in part because the media hated her. Um, and anyway, my, my whole rap against liberal media bias, I, mean, I think I wrote this like 20 years ago and it used to get a lot of play was like, I always likened it to your, your, like your college roommate who drank your last beer and you're like, um, you're not really that mad that he drank your last beer, but he didn't ask. Right. And so you're like, dude, you drank my last beer. And the guy says, you know, no, I didn't. And you say, yes, you did. There was one beer left and you took it. And he says, no, I didn't. What are you talking about? And he said, dude, it's in your hand. I saw you take it out of the fridge. Just admit it. And it was that sort of refusal to admit the biases of the mainstream media that drove a lot of us kind of bonkers. And it still drives me bonkers. I, like whenever I hear someone deny, you know, Dan Rather used to say it all the time that that media bias was this, this huge myth. Uh, this guy, Eric Alterman, wrote a famous book saying, you know, uh, the, the media was, in fact, biased from the left. I mean, from the right. Um, and it's true if you are a certain breed of sort of quasi Marxist um, where you think corporate power is the most evil thing in the world. An idea that has spread to quite a bit of the right of late. Um, um, and, you you know, the, the crowd that thought the New York Times was violating some grand principle because it had a business section, but not a labor section. Um, if you come from that perspective, um, because perspective is relative, you know, if we're going to talk about in terms of places on the political spectrum, then yeah, okay, maybe the New York Times and all those guys were too far right for you. But that doesn't mean they were objectively to the right of center of American politics. And um, and now the thing that just drives me crazy about the argument is, or the way so many people on the right do it, is it's just this zero-sum tribal tribal thing, where, um, you know, they 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 kind of treat the media as if it's one giant conspiracy theory, and I've never th I've never bought into that argument, right? This idea that everybody sits around the table at the Washington Post or the New York Times and says, okay, how are we going to cover today's news from a liberal perspective? You know, the biases are so much more insidious um, and, 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 and um, subtle than that. A lot of it comes from groupthink, right? A lot of it comes from the sort of social milieu of um, that, that, from which we draw a lot of journalists. A lot of it comes from the sort of the psychology of what drives people to go to journalism in the first place. Um, if you're of that sort of, to sort of use a Tom Sowell argument, if you're of that unconstrained vision, right? If you have that sort of, let us, you know, enlighten the masses point of view where you think the country is riven by deep, a deep sickness of inequality or whatever, the idea of being a journalism, being a journalist, is 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 really compelling. It's also this a similar psychology that drives a lot of people to become teachers, that drives them to become you know political activists. And there's a reason why there's sort of semi permeable barrier between sort of liberal activist types and 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 journalism. 
Um, and there is increasingly one, you know, a, a similar barrier on the right. And, um, and so the weird, and so the weirdest dynamic now is that to me, the, the way, uh, the particular, and this is particularly acute and, 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 and obvious in the way cable news does things where because of this sort of popular front mentality, right? This and popular front is a concept that I really wish people would bring back because it helps explain things, you know, popular fronts, um, were historically mostly things of the left, right? You know, and it was like this, you know, you would get all the left, the left of center parties, the socialists, the social Democrats, the Marxists, the Bolsheviks, the progressives, the Christian Democrats, whoever, they would all unite and form a popular front against, you know, Franco or Hitler or, 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 um, you know, some autocrat or King or whatever. And it would be, you know, this idea that, um, you know, this famous phrase from French, which is, uh, I'm not going to try to do it in French. It's something like, enemy de la gauche or something like that. Anyway, it's like, um, no enemies to the left, right? You don't shoot inside the tent. You train all your fire outside the tent. And there is very much a similar mindset in a lot of liberal media where, um, you partly because of psychology where there's this weird thing in liberalism, which says that, you know, the, the more radical you are, the more uncompromising you are in your ideological vision, the more authentic and serious you are, right? This explains a big chunk of why people, you know, liberals still admire Che Guevara. It's because he was pure and he was committed to the revolution and he didn't, he, he issued, uh, you know, bourgeois comforts for the, the radical, the thrill of radical commitment. Um, it's why liberals in the 1960s had such trouble, um, dealing with the ire and scorn of, um, the new left and the radicals to their left. Uh, you know, a famous example of this was the guns on campus crisis at Cornell in I think 68, maybe it was 69. I can't remember. Um, where, uh, a bunch of serious sort of black nationalist radical students and, and outside agitators or whatever they called them, um, brought guns on campus and they were threatening the, um, administration and making demands and all this kind of stuff. Um, this was the incident that basically drove a bunch of conservative professors and grad students out of Cornell. Some of them went on to become very prominent Straussian political philosophers. Uh, one of, I believe, was a grad student at the time, but maybe he was a young professor, was uh, Tom Sowell, who was heavily influenced by all that. Um, and there was Clinton Rossiter, who was a sort of classic centrist liberal historian, one of the great historians of the 20th century. And he was sort of a classically liberal guy. And, you know, he took this position of, of we should hear all points of view and all that kind of thing. And when push came to shove, he just lost all his nerve and kind of caved to the radicals. And I'll, that's a story that repeated itself throughout the 19, 1960s was this, you know, this, uh, view that like, um, mainstream liberals didn't have the moral authority to condemn or police the hard left. And, um, you saw that dynamic in racial politics. You saw that dynamic in feminism. You saw that dynamic in all sorts of things. And 
it's all much more subdued now to be sure, but the same sort of pattern or dynamic is at work where places like MSNBC and, and, you know, and else, elsewhere at CNN, you have, you know, liberal hosts who just think it's fascinating to listen to hardcore left-wing people and give them an airing and they don't provide it much by way of like serious skepticism or cross-examination of what, you know, of the crazy ideas that they're putting out there. And the, so the net result is actually very, very bad for Democrats because you give, um, you, first of all, that stuff gets picked up by Fox, by social media, by all the right wing sites. And, um, and since, you know, you know, polling is pretty clear on this, a lot of conservatives think that the mainstream media, such as it is, is basically an adjunct of the Democratic Party. And so it kind of doesn't matter to a certain extent as a political matter when actual elected Democrats don't embrace a lot of these ideas um, or only a, a fringe group of them, like say Bernie Sanders or um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that crowd embrace them. If, if they're getting a megaphone from the mainstream media, if their ideas are being treated respectfully and they're not being grilled for their craziness and their extremism, the net result, fairly or unfairly, is the impression um, that the the you know that the Democrats believe this stuff, or that you know liberals believe that stuff. Or you know, I can't tell you how many conversations I have or overhear at you know my cigar shop where people you know sort of moderate to conservative people are like, "Can you believe what they're talking about doing now?" as if there is this undifferentiated mass of they um, to the left. And you say, where'd you hear that? He said, well, I just saw this thing on MSNBC or I just read this op-ed in the New York Times. You know, I mean, um, the amount of space that the Washington Post and the New York Times just give to uncritical celebratory, cult, you know, celebratory um, coverage of transgender stuff um, is wildly disproportionate to the number of transgender people in America. Um, and wildly disproportionate to where actual rank and file Democrats or even Democratic politicians lie, but it creates this um, this atmosphere that moderate Democrats feel that they can't, you know, violate or speak out against, and um, and it creates this impression um, among conservative audiences because what conservative audiences get is the distilled sound bites of this stuff, whether it's abolish the police or whatever, and. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 sort of the systemic version of what you know David French calls nut picking, where you know you pick up the worst person or the most ridiculous example of somebody on the other side and you wave it around and you say, "See what this is? What they're all like." And there's a totally it's not symmetrical. There are differences and all that kind of thing, but there's a totally analogous phenomenon on the right where, you know. Marjorie Taylor Greene gets a fair, uncritical hearing on Newsmax or Fox or wherever, and then you'll see, you know, it'll be picked up on, um, you know, Nicole Wallace's show. We'll just say, this is what Republicans are saying now. And it creates this impression among Democrats that that's what all the Republicans are like, and it creates this impression among moderate Republicans like, oh, crap, I can't speak out against this stuff because this is what the base actually wants and believes. And it's an incredibly dysfunctional kind of phenomenon. So you end up getting, um, you know, the the favors that liberal journalists do to far left people 
actually are doing no favors to anybody um, except the very far left people because they're not doing a favor to the Democratic Party because they're helping brand the Democratic Party as far as more left wing than it actually is. Um, and they're helping Republicans seize the center and say, look, you may not like Trump or you may not like this or that, but at least we're not one of those crazies. And you get a similar dynamic on the right where, um, you know, if you uh, give these people a favorable hearing, it creates this sense that, um, uh, you know, the Democrats are the only sane people in town. And, you know, one of the best examples of this, as I wrote, you know, in the G file was, you know, is, is, is Ron DeSantis, who's just simply made, you know, his war on the media and the, and the media's war on him, um, sort of central to his whole brand. And, you know, like, so 60 minutes, I'm sure they thought when they were going into it, that they were doing fantastic journalism. Um, and, um, you know, speaking truth to power by doing this hit job on Ron DeSantis. But because that narrative does it, can't go uncontested anymore, and Ron DeSantis can get the, the opposite, you know, get, can get his rebuttal out there, it ended up making 60 Minutes look ridiculous and was ultimately like an in-kind donation to, to Ron DeSantis. The days where really crappy, you know, liberal bias coverage can go uncontested um, are just simply gone. And, um, you know, it used to be like, I remember vividly the, the New York Times, was it R.W. Apple? I think it was, did this really crappy thing where he pretended he did this write-up as a pool reporter that said that George H.W. Bush was shocked to see a supermarket scanner, you know, the thing that reads the price tag or whatever. And, um, and they just, all they did was run a caption and a picture. Um, and the, the caption, the picture showed Bush very, you know, looking really surprised. And the caption said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, uh, Vice President Bush is surprised by a supermarket scanner, or maybe it was President Bush at the time. I can't remember the year. And um, that just simply took off. And it was, it was part of this proof that the Democrats picked up on that Bush was out of touch. Yeah, that's right. It was when he was president that Bush was out of touch. He, you know, didn't know what it was like to even shop in a supermarket and blah, 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 blah. And the truth of it was, was that this wasn't a normal supermarket scanner. He was at the grocery, you know, many, the grocery trade association convention or something. This was a scanner that could read, um, torn labels. Um, and, um, it was like a new technology and maybe Bush shouldn't have been surprised by that, but he was also a politician and these guys were very proud of the thing and he was acting surprised or maybe he was sincerely surprised. It doesn't matter. But it was almost impossible back then, you know, before Fox, before the internet, to contest that stuff um, effectively. I mean, conservatives complained about it. The Media Research Center did good stuff on that um, because there was this sense that, like, you know, and I'm sure Rush Limbaugh went to town on it. But, um, and that's one of the main reasons why Rush Limbaugh was um, so popular, is he was the alternative media for a while for conservatives because there was no other place where you could get sort of truth squatting of what the liberal media was trying to pull off. And those days are just simply over. And, and, and that's sort of why I'm sort of, I, I, I weary of the, the media obsession stuff. Um, 
But that also doesn't mean I disagree with the basic argument that the mainstream media is liberal. Um, there was a guy in the comments, the comments section on the G file was bonkers and I have not read all of it, but there was a guy named Doug or his handle was like Doug CLE. And, you know, and he made the point that, um, right wing media bias is deep, but narrow and left wing media bias is, is wide, but shallow. And I think that's a perfectly fine way, um, to think about it, depending on what institution or what journalists you're talking about. There is definitely an asymmetry between left wing, between left of center media and right of center media. And it's one of the reasons we founded the dispatch is that there's, there's, um, a lot of white space on the right of center for organizations that um, don't want to carry, you know, water for the party, um, that want to be sort of fact focused, that want to do, you know, reporting. Doesn't mean there aren't good reporters at some right wing outlets, but reporting is less of an obsession on the right than it is on the left. And I think that is just simply, obviously, and, and transparently true. Um, the leg, we can call it the legacy media if you want. I mean, the New York times, the Washington post, these things are big, huge journalistic enterprises that have enormous resources to do reporting and they consider reporting to be central to their mission. And there just aren't the, there aren't similar institutions on the right with the exception, probably in terms of scope and scale with the exception really of, uh, Fox news and Fox news, I would argue to its detriment is letting itself be branded by its opinion side rather than by the news side. And I still think the news side does lots of good stuff and they need support and they need, you know, attaboys. Jennifer Griffin has been fantastic over there. I'm still a big fan of my friend, Brett bear. Um, but because of this nut picking phenomenon, the stuff, if you don't actually watch Fox, if you don't watch special report, right? If you just tune in every now and then at prime time, or if you, um, um, just watch the clips that the the nut pickers on you know on the MSNBC or CNN or New York Times side focus on. You would get an impression of Fox that's very different than I think the reality is. Um, anyway, then I talked about um, because I was all worked up about media bias. I talked about the Kavanaugh, you know, or not the Kavanaugh. I talked about the um, Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, confirmation hearings. And I pause there because I keep saying, as, as me and Kevin Williamson talked about earlier today, I keep wanting to say Katanji Jackson Brown because of the name Jackson Brown, but it's Katanji Brown Jackson um, of our confirmation hearings. And look, I, I basically think everybody's a little right in their criticisms of that. The several of the Republican senators, from what I can tell, have behaved like jackasses. I don't think that's disputable. Um, this is a broader, you know, it's part of a broader institutional phenomenon where hearings in general, particularly any high profile hearings, um, the incentive structure is to do stuff that can be edited down for little video things that you can send out for fundraising or you can make go viral on social media that really don't have anything to do with the substance of things. And so I have no problem if you want to criticize Marsha Blackburn for trying to do that when she asked um, uh, uh, Jackson, <laughs> I'm going to keep messing that up, um, to define a woman, that's fine. I think that you're probably right about, about Blackburn's motivations. But that doesn't mean that her answer was not newsworthy. 
right? I mean, like lots of, and like, I mean, <laughs> the question that got Ted Kennedy, that ruined Ted Kennedy's campaign was the mother of softball questions. It was a very friendly interview. And, and I can't remember who the guy was, but he asked him, he asked Ted Kennedy, why do you want to be president? And Ted Kennedy couldn't come up with an answer. And, you know, and that kind of destroyed his presidential campaign. Um, the motivations behind the question are perfectly fine if you want to criticize them. I have lots of criticisms of Marsha Blackburn, not to mention Josh Hawley and, and all the rest. But, like, it's still newsworthy that a candidate, you know, a nominee for the Supreme Court felt for political reasons, and I obviously think it's for political reasons, that she just didn't want to answer the question of, you know, can you give me a definition of a woman? Um, and I think the fact that that's just as an objective matter, whether you're pro, um, you know, trans rights or anti-trans rights, or if you're conflicted about the whole issue, which I think most people kind of are, because most people want to be fair and decent, but at the same time, they understand that there are trade-offs. If you take this stuff, you know, too far down the road, um, uh, it, that's interesting, right? I mean, like it was interesting when, um, you know, like David Souter insisted that he never spent a moment of his life thinking about abortion or Roe v. Wade. It just never came up in his life. He never thought about it. It never crossed his mind. He never formed an opinion and all that kind of stuff. And what he was obviously doing there, in part because he was a stealth liberal, but whatever, he was, what he was doing there was dodging the question because he felt he had to for political purposes. And that has been written up eight trillion times as some as an interesting thing right both from a hostile perspective and not and um the immediate reaction from uh you know vast swaths of the um mainstream media both on the opinion side and and on the analysis side which is what we call uh the opinion side that kind of wants to seem like the news side um was that the only thing of interest here was how Republicans, this is part of the Repu Republican smearing or trolling effort um, against, you know, a, a black woman nominee. And I just think that's an obvious sign of bias. Um, um, and then the other part of it, which I talked about was this, which I'm just going because I looked at the comments and everybody's freaking out about it. Um, the Kavanaugh thing, you know, I made this argument in the G file that, that, you know, there's this, there was this widespread thing. Noah Roth, Rothman has a good piece sort of chronicling all of it that say, you know, so like Lindsey Graham, who's another preening, you know, camera mugging guy who I have no problem with people criticizing. He and some others were talking about how Republican, he was trying to claim that Republicans were taking the high road on her nomination, unlike the way Democrats acted with Kavanaugh. And, um, you know, opinions can differ about how high the road uh, the Republicans are taking is on this, you know, uh, child sex abuse line of questioning. Um, that's a that's a different point. Um, but the simple fact is, is that, you know, he, there's a core, there's a, there's a serious kernel of truth to Graham's point. Um, people ran with this, um, these uh, unverified, poorly sourced, um, uncorroborated accusations of outright rape um, that weren't sufficiently or, you know, uh, backed up by witnesses. Um, it was a, a, an attempt at character assassination to destroy a nominee. 
I just, I, I believe that in my heart. I don't want to revisit all, all of those arguments, but if you just look at what Jane Mayer and the New Yorker did and, and other places, um, this was, uh, an example of herd mentality of the mainstream media running wild with an accusation that they could not prove, um, and did not prove, um, and, and now the, the standard line is, well, the difference is, is that Kavanaugh was credibly accused. That's the phrase everybody uses, credibly accused of sexual assault. Um, and in fact, just this morning after, you know, after I read the G file that the Washington post does this whole editorial about this and to argue that Republicans are treating, um, uh, judge Jackson, uh, worse than they, tr than Democrats treated Kavanaugh, which I just think is just garbage. I mean, yeah, I understand it's Rashomon and, and there's, and people lose their minds about Supreme court appointees and all the rest, but it's just, I just think it's factually untrue and even if you don't think it's untrue even if you think he was credibly accused um of all of these things you know there there are two other points worth making one is you know these journalistic outlets that ran wild with the accusation what like how long ago was this now three years ago four years ago um went wild with this accusation um they haven't spent any time trying to nail it down they haven't, you know, we haven't seen efforts like we saw with, uh, you know, with um, the Clarence Thomas stuff where uh, reporters said, okay, let's, let's actually figure this out for history, what really happened. And maybe, maybe those efforts were made and they came of nothing, but no one wrote, said, yeah, we looked at this much closer with the benefit of time and resources and we found that there was no, no, no there, there, you know, so if they did it, and they found and they they found that it wasn't true they didn't report it um or they didn't try to do it at all because the whole point was it was a it was a pretextual um smear job and they just want to put it behind them um and the second point is just that you know look again lindsey graham drives me crazy i got i'm not here to defend lindsey graham but if you're going to accuse people of being inconsistent or hypocritical they have to be inconsistent and, and, and hypocritical on their own terms. And there's this um, uh, just uh, incredible amount of question begging, um, not question raising, question begging, where all these people, these columnists, these reporters, these commentators, these pundits, they were, because they believe that Kavanaugh was credibly uh, accused, they think Lindsey Graham must believe it too. And I can tell you this flat out, I, Lindsey Graham doesn't believe that that Kavanaugh was credibly accused. And so when he says, you know, we're not doing what you guys did, he's speaking honestly from his own position, right? I mean, he can only be hypocritical or deceitful if he actually doesn't believe what he is saying. And I can just, I can tell you, I mean, I've, I've heard him talk in private and in public about Kavanaugh many times. Uh, you know, he believes that that was a, a political hit job. And, um, so all of this dunking about, well, you know, he doesn't even acknowledge yeah, it's like, it's just not true. Um, and you know, and again, I think that the thing that drives most liberal media bias is groupthink. Um, it's that these people 
don't talk to conservatives very much. If they do, it's kind of adversarial. Um, you know, the, the incestuousness between sort of elite reporters and democratic um, politics is just staggering on a social level. Um, you know, I have a friend who dated a prominent democratic consultant and he's a big conservative and he was like, I never met so many New York times reporters and Washington post reporters until I started dating, you know, a professional Democrat because they, they're married to each other. They go to each other's weddings. They're all friends. They give, they give Democrats the benefit of the doubt. They assume that, um, Democrats are working from a sincere place in ways that they just simply don't with Republicans and it manifests itself in coverage. You know, you, my roommate took the last beer and, um, um, what was I about to say? Um, and oh, just, you know, the last point, I mean, it's like, you know, how just, just do it as a, if, if it were an accident, right? I mean, the, the classic argument from very sincere, good journalists. I still think, you know, a lot of these people are liberals, but it doesn't mean all of them are bad reporters and journalists. There's all, you know, New York Times does a lot of great reporting. Washington Post does a lot of great reporting. The more liberal news section of the Wall Street Journal does some fantastic reporting. But um, if you just sort of keep score of how many, you know, sort of uh, points for Democrats versus points for Republicans, um, are put on the board by, you know, your typical political coverage, if there was no bias involved, it should come out like 50, 50 because of the, just the sort of the way the statistics would work. Right. I mean, if there was no, you know, if there was nothing, if, there, if, if, if the coin is properly weighted, it should be heads 50% of the time and tails 50% of the time. Um, and if there is no liberal media bias, the media should come up, you know, making the same number of errors in the Republicans' favor as they make in the Democrats' favor. And it, I just don't think a serious person who's, who follows the news seriously can can make that argument. Um, and I think in this populist age, you know, that is why that fact is just sort of wildly overinterpreted into sort of conspiracy stuff. Um, and it just, I just sort of find it exhausting. Um, all right. I did not mean to go 40 minutes into all that. I really apologize. Um, I'm hoping that this gets it out of my system for a very, very, very long time. So I don't know what I'm going to write for tomorrow's G file. Um, I kind of really wanted to do this thing on, um, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones did this thing about how tipping is a legacy of slavery. Um, which I think is sort of, uh, she said it on Twitter and I think there's just a lot of, I, I, I'm not a fan of Jones. I think she is a perfect example of the kind of journalist that I am talking about that works from a worldview and simply filters out, um, the stuff that is inconvenient to her worldview and her thesis. Um, but, uh, um, but I'm not interested in like writing at length about Twitter spats and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, I find that kind of argument sort of fascinating in that there is a kernel of truth to what she is talking about. It's not a legacy of slavery, um, but, you know, there was um, uh, that there is a connection between tipping in America and Jim Crow in the sense that when the slaves were freed, um, the uh, a lot of employers 
didn't want to start paying a real wage to um, black workers. And so they created a lot of jobs like, you know, um, the guys on trains and, you know, doormen and these various service jobs where they said, look, you know, if you do the job right, you'll get tipped, but you know, we're going to not going to really pay you a real wage. And, but so what's kind of interesting to, but like, that's not where tipping came from, right? Tipping, tipping is a, you know, I think it's probably, it's not quite a universal custom, but I think it is a custom that has appeared in many, many cultures. The standard history, I looked into this the other day, you know, the standard history is that it, there was basically no tipping for the first 40 or so years of 50 years of um, the United States. When I say no tipping, I'm saying it just wasn't a common practice. And then either because rich Americans brought the custom back from Europe or because rich Europeans came to America and brought the custom with them, it started to catch on. Now, one of the things you can learn from, you can deduce from that already is that, you know, this, this was in the 1840s and slavery still existed. So it didn't have a lot to do with slavery. Um, moreover, although in a sense you could say it does insofar as tipping in Europe has its roots in feudalism, where it was sort of a kind of noblesse oblige to throw a couple coins at a serf or a peon, you know, who did good work. Um, um, because basically serfs and peons and, and lower class people weren't, weren't paid very much. And it was sort of a nice thing to do. And, um, um, but you know, Jones goes on to say, you know, doesn't, why doesn't anybody ask why, um, tipping is only in America and not, you know, almost any other place in the world. And this is one of those things where she just doesn't know what she's talking about. It took me two seconds of Googling to find never mind my lived experience having been to quite a few countries you know tipping is a custom in lots of countries including africa um you know we may be tipped too much we may have institu institutionalized tipping too much um uh, i get all that but this idea that somehow it's a legacy of slavery is is just not true and i guess the interesting thing to me is let's say it was right let's say um that it really does complete come completely out of slavery in some way um that's contrafactual not um you know sort of ahistorical but let's just sort of stipulate for the sake of argument that it was is that enough to say the tipping is bad um you know like with the defund the police stuff there was this argument that had a really small fraction of truth to it which said, you know, like, you know, Jim Clyburn had that statement where he said tipping is, um, not tipping, that policing comes from slave patrols. So it's, it's racist from the beginning. Um, and it is true that there were some slave patrols that, um, some of the members then became police when the first sort of police forces in the South were set up. Um, but the first police department in North America, I believe was in, in New Amsterdam in the 1600s, where the Dutch before, you know, before Manhattan became uh, New York, uh, um, uh, set up a police department. Um, you know, the, the oldest sort of like formal professional police department, I think is the Boston police department, which comes from, I want to say the 1820s or something like that. But the police function 
is really, really, really old. And the idea that somehow policing is, but again, let's imagine for the sake of argument that it did come completely out of slave patrols. Is that an argument for getting rid of policing in its entirety? I mean, in other words, can't some customs, institutions, practices come out of bad things and still be worthwhile? Um, you know, look, uh, matzah, the, you know, the unleavened bread of my people that we have at Passover, uh, that's a legacy of slavery, right? If slavery, if the, if the Hebrews, if the Israelites weren't enslaved, um, they wouldn't have rushed to get out of Dodge uh, so fast that they, they didn't wait for their bread to rot, the dough to rise. Um, now there's, there are arguments about kosher wine, about where it comes from and all that kind of stuff. But one of the arguments I heard is that, you know, um, in the mid ages, middle ages, there was a not unreasonable concern among Jews that, um, uh, if you just use normal wine, uh, it could be poisoned because people like to kill Jews. You can look it up. Um, and so kosher wine was a sort of a quality assurance thing that made sure that Jews handled it throughout every stage of the process. And the assumption was that Jews wouldn't poison or put broken glass um, in wine for other Jews. Um, but that may be an urban legend. I'm not sure I've heard it before, but I, I, I haven't corroborated it. Um, and there are other reasons to have kosher wine. I'm not I'm not getting into all that, but you know, Israel would not exist were it not for the Holocaust. Does that mean because Israel is a legacy of the Holocaust that Israel is bad? Um, a lot of the best things about Judaism in general, you know, community self-reliance, you know, devotion to education, all those sorts of things are the product of, you know, millennia of antisemitism. Um, does that mean that stuff is bad? Um, you know, or even take, you know, which I read about in, in Suicide of the West, you know, the concept of usury, um, which from which you get all of these anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish finance and the Rothschilds and all that kind of stuff. You know, one of the reasons why Jews were, um, you know, disproportionately in finance in the Middle Ages was because of, the, of this idea going, actually going back to Aristotle, um, but really codified by the Catholic Church and by the various monarchies that said that money lending was evil and that you couldn't get into heaven as a Christian if you were in the business of, of lending money at interest. And so there was a carve out made for Jews because Jews weren't Christians, so they weren't subject to these laws which ban Christians from getting into the business of lending money. And, um, and a lot of, you know, kings relied on, um, Jews to finance wars and crusades and, 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 and building of cathedrals and a thousand, you know, trenches, bridges, whatever, you know, they relied on the Jews who were bankers to do this kind of stuff. And yet at the same time, they participated in cultures that condemned Jews for being moneylenders. And, um, you know, that's is what it is. That's the history. That doesn't mean that I think, you know, uh, if you're, a, <laughs> if you're a Jewish guy working in finance, that somehow you should be ashamed because it's a legacy of medieval antisemitism. And, um, I just think it's kind of fascinating that these kinds of arguments that you hear all over the place, that's that, that want to do this sort of fruit from the poisoned tree guilt by association thing. And, 
you know, this sort of jibes with the stuff I was talking about last week and, um, and the week before and the stuff I talked about with Kevin Williamson about how conservatives are comfortable with contradiction. And, you know, and one of the things that conservatives understand, at least conservatives sort of rightly understood, understand it. And, 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 and I, I mean this in not a sort of partisan way, because there are plenty of liberals who understand this. This is a, you know, this is kind of a wisdom thing, but I think it works in with the grain of, of, of the conservative temperament that understands that good things can come from bad stuff and bad stuff can come from good things, right? The, the idea that bad stuff can come from good things is called the law of unintended consequences. Um, it's enshrined in stuff like careful what you wish for. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the way we do progress is we have setbacks and then we do lessons learned and then we, we build on the setbacks and we, you know, I mean like, look, you wouldn't get the end of serfdom and the rise of the wage labor economy were it not for the bubonic plague. I mean, maybe it would have happened eventually anyway, but the whole reason people started paying laborers in Europe when they did is because there was such a massive labor shortage caused by, um, you know, like a third of the population dying from this disease. And so there weren't enough serfs who are, you know, sort of just above, I mean, there's an argument about whether they're slaves or, you know, or not. I, I argue that it's, if, if it's not slavery, it's really damn close. Um, but uh, all of a sudden there were so few of them that lords found that they needed to hire people from other places, you know, labor from other places to get the crops in and to, you know, and do the work of their estates. And then you had competitive pressures that, you know, actually had people bidding for services rather than just demanding it. Because once you got enough of that going, once you sort of got enough traction with that process, um, serfs knew that they could run from where they were to someplace where they could make a living. And, you know, the people who are employing them wouldn't necessarily want to like send them back the way they might have, you know, before the plague. That doesn't mean you should tear up your paycheck because it's a legacy of the black death. Um, and I just, I, anyway, I find this stuff sort of fascinating. I remember, you know, there were, you know, gosh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but I remember there was this, there was this African-American liberal guy, Tavis Smiley years ago. Um, he was at some giant rally that I was listening to on C-SPAN because I'm cool like that. And he was talking about, this is during the Iraq war stuff. And he was talking about how, you know, war is never really, America's wars have really not, never done anything good for African-Americans. And I always thought this was just such a weird thing to claim. Um, I am not claiming that African Americans should be grateful for American wars or anything like that. And I'm, nor am I claiming that African Americans, um, haven't had a raw deal in the past and that there aren't real issues today or any of that kind of stuff. But if you're actually just going to look at the history of the impact of war on African Americans, um, in terms of, of advancing the cause of equality and social progress, Wars have been pretty damn good for African-Americans in the sense that you, you know, we, I would like to think we would have desegregated the military no matter what eventually, 
but the actual forcing mechanism for desegregating the military was the Korean War. Um, you know, the forcing, uh, you know, mechanism that got African Americans to serve in, uh, well, in the Civil War, um, you know, in military and combat, but also in World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen was, you know, war. They would not have been, they would not have opened those positions up to African Americans um, were it not for the, the necessity being the mother of invention of new social um, rules, um, but for war. Um, and the same thing to a certain extent goes for feminism. You know, the uh, World War I led in very tangible ways to w women's suffrage. Again, I'd like to think that we would have given women the vote you know, eventually anyway, but as history actually unfolded, World War I played a huge role in that. World War II, because of domestic labor shortages of men, um, played an enormous role of integrating women into the workforce outside of sort of traditional pre-marriage jobs. Should we talk about, you know, women in the workforce being a legacy of war and therefore bad? I mean, I know some conservatives who are sympathetic to some of those arguments, but I'm, I'm not one of them. Um, um, and so anyway, the only, the only point is, is like, people seem to think that like, even if you could pr prove that tipping was a legacy of, of slavery, that therefore we should get rid of it, um, uh, is just sort of nonsense. And it's this sort of lazy way of saying, and this is what my real suspicion is with Jones is that she's just, she doesn't like tipping. She's got a chip on her shoulder about tipping and, and, um, and as some sort of, you know, sort of classic left-wing views about how economics works. And she thinks that the, you know, she's one of these people sort of like Uncle Leo in Seinfeld who, you know, thinks like when he went, there's a scene in Seinfeld where Uncle Leo um, orders a medium rare hamburger at the diner and he gets it medium. And he says, I bet you the cook is an anti-Semite. And Jerry says, I don't know, you know, you know, maybe, you know, maybe not or something like that. And, um, uh, and uncle Leo says, Jerry overcooked hamburgers don't just happen. Right. It's this, it's this classic sort of conspiratorial mindset that, that reverse engineers from something, an inconvenience or a hindrance or, um, bad luck. And it says not only is this unfair, but there must be intentionality to it, right? That is the sort of core psychological mechanism of most conspiracy theories is that, you know, um, you know, you know, these things don't just happen. Someone must have been behind it. Um, and, uh, and I think that's sort of where she comes from. And the best part of her, the best part of her Twitter thread on this was when that guy Torre, I think that's his name. Um, got into a thing with her about it. And she was like, where do you, why do you think restaurants have tipping in the first place? And he said to shift, um, costs from, uh, the owner or management, uh, or to the, or the business to the consumer. And she's like, bingo or nailed it or something like that. And you know, <laughs> that is a very old left-wing way of thinking about economics that is just doesn't line up with reality because guess what 
the costs of everything are always shifted to the consumer. Um, you know, it, like we, we can do the tariffs and protectionism stuff thing again, if you like, but you know, if the, the source of revenue for a restaurant is the consumer and if you think that, you know, her position seems to be that if the, if the staff are underpaid, the amount that they are making from tipping should just be included in their salaries as if the customer won't be paying that and the business will when in reality the customer pays for all of it because that is the source of where the revenue comes from and um and i just i find it just sort of hilarious this sort of you know the, this confidence that they've figured out some sort of conspiracy about this um businesses make their money from the people who give them money and um you know if you tax businesses uh, the costs of that are passed on to the consumer in one way or another. Um, and this is a point that I just find um, uh, so, so amazingly difficult for a lot of otherwise smart people to, to grasp. You know, when they talk about how this business is making crazy profits and, and, um, um, and that they should sacrifice their profits and all these kinds of things. Look, I get it. You know, maybe there's a, I, I don't, I don't really think, let me put it this way. Most of the time when people talk about somebody making windfall profits, if you actually look at what they're talking about, it doesn't really work. Um, um, but you know, the simple fact is the way economics work is that, that, that customers, cover the costs of the business. And if they don't cover the costs of the business, the businesses have two choices. You know, they can raise prices or they can go out of business. Um, you know, yeah, sure. At the margins, someone can say, maybe we'll make less, less profit, but that's not a public policy solution to anything in the competitive marketplace. Anyway, I'm, I'm done with all that. Uh, uh, we're an hour in. I was going to talk about this this new compact magazine, but maybe maybe I'll write about that tomorrow. I think it's um, amusing and interesting, and some of the stuff is actually pretty good. But um, in it, or at least pretty interesting. Um, but I I don't think they're doing what they think they're doing. Um, but we'll see. I'm a big believer in 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 eggheady journals and magazines, and I think they're interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, I haven't talked anything about Russia or Ukraine. Um, I was listening to a podcast earlier today from the economist about just the unbelievable, depressing situation in Mariupol. Um, no need to get too deep into it now. We'll probably talk about it on the dispatch podcast tomorrow, but, um, it does feel like what they're trying to do is basically use it as a, um, as a cautionary tale to the other, just to basically to terrify as an instrument of terror to say to these other cities, give up now or you'll end up flattened like Mariupol. And, um, it's heartbreaking. And I mean, the, the, the death, and the suffering obviously are the very worst part of it. And I would not want to minimize that or claim that other things um, are as morally significant. Um, but I also just, I find it so depressing, you know, these, 
you know, these buildings, these cities that were sort of beautiful, um, the idea of them being wrecked for all time, um, you know, I find heartbreaking and I worry that, um, you know, even if things work out fantastically well, given the givens and grading on a real curve here, because the suffering and destruction has been massive. And so it's very difficult to see how this is a, you know, a win for Ukraine in any way, but even if they do succeed in winning and, and even if they succeed in getting, you know, Russia to pay for all sorts of things, I just worry that, you know, the sort of modern architecture mafia is going to want to put big shiny steel stuff in some of these really beautiful classic art deco and, you know, and, and other sort of, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th century, um, pieces of architecture are just going to simply be lost. And, um, that depresses me. The stuff with the animals depresses me, but the stuff about the kids and the humans depresses me the most. And, um, um, and I really, you know, I kind of agree with Kevin Williamson from our conversation yesterday. Um, I really want Ukraine to get out of this as intact as they possibly can. And I, I, I'm very respectful of that priority, but at the same time, um, I would like, you know, I would love for this to lead to the, um, the overthrow of Putin and, um, a massive radical political change in Russia for the better. Um, I don't know what levers or powers we have to, to see that happen. But um, that would be a best case scenario coming out of it. Um, and um, anyway, there's other stuff I want to talk about Russia and Ukraine, but I just, I, you know, I'm an hour into this thing and it probably doesn't make sense to, to start a whole new thing. But there's some, I've been reading a lot of interesting things about, you know, about the Russian military and, and the way Russia has I mean, so kevin makes this point which i think is very good and we talk about it you know is that the there's a fragility to autocracies in the modern era that um we sometimes find beguiling um and don't appreciate that you know a lot of these regimes because they don't they they don't put a premium on on truth telling um on um, on efficiency, which is a big part of truth telling. Um, and truth, I should say truth telling is a big part of efficiency. You cannot improve processes if you're not honestly describing deficiencies. Um, and, uh, that book, why nations fail has really fantastic chapters on the problems of the old Soviet economy, which I understand Russia's economy is not completely analogous to the Russian economy, but the, I think there are are obvious parallels of fact and of, of culture. Um, but you know, there were, um, rules in, in Soviet industry. And I'm not talking about under Stalin. I'm talking about into the sixties and seventies where, um, because you didn't have, because everything was so politicized, you had people, you had workers who could be fined massive amounts of money for not working hard enough for taking too long a break you can be sent to jail if you did it like three times in a row maybe in the next solo remnant i'll read from some of that stuff from the 
why nations fail book. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and that's what you, you get that kind of stuff when, uh, the regime is paying for outputs on measurable outputs on paper rather than, um, that are, that are judged politically rather than economically. Um, when you have people who cannot, you know, uh, rely on price mechanisms to find the accurate price for goods and services. I mean, this is, this was a huge part of Friedrich Hayek's and, and von Mises' arguments against socialism was just simply that if you don't have, um, efficient and accurate pricing mechanisms that can take in factors that bureaucrats can't possibly imagine, um, you will get led horribly astray. And, um, and I think there's an analog to that in, um, how Russia has run its military for quite a while where political, pro I mean, people talk about, you know, I keep seeing this, this crappy stuff on Twitter about how, you know, what was that guy? George Papadopoulos had this dumb tweet where he was talking about Russia just dropped a hypersonic rock, you know, missile. Um, and meanwhile, our army is obsessing about woke stuff and pronouns and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, there's an argument that they dropped the hypersonic missile because they're running out of normal rockets. Um, maybe not, but, uh, they also might've dropped it out of desperation. They're trying to scare the crap out of people because they're uh, the, troops on the ground are not functioning properly. But the simple fact is if you talk to any military expert, the U S military, and you know, for all the PC stuff that I have problems with and whatever, U S military is vastly more lethal and effective than the Russian military. And that was almost surely true going by what we knew about the Russian military before, um, the invasion of Ukraine. Now it is transparently obvious that the way they train, the way they equip, the way they handle logistics has been utterly corrupted by politics and bureaucracy, ass covering, bureaucratic ass covering, and the climate of fear and intimidation set from the top. And um, um, I do not, I cannot fully get my head around this compulsion from some people on the right who are now are sort of in this sort of obsessive blame America first mode, this obsessive kind of like we're no better than they are, or our stuff is bad too, or whatever that they can't make clear moral distinctions between and factual distinctions between what we're, what, you know, what our problems are and our problems are real, but they are just orders of magnitude. You know, we're orders of magnitude in better shape than these backward, corrupt oligarchic countries. Um, and maybe I'll close with this, uh, since I defied myself and did this, this, uh, little bit about Russia and Ukraine. Um, I wrote this G file, which I liked, and I heard from a handful of people saying that they really liked it, but uh, you know, I think I probably went too long before I got to the stuff, but I, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea that comes from Confucius of the rectification of the names that societies find themselves kind of at sea and in a mess when the language we use to describe things no longer conforms with reality. And I think we've got that problem in all sorts of ways that I barely scratched the surface on. And I'm actually thinking like, if I do end up writing another book, it might be along these lines. Um, 
But um, I heard from a good friend of mine in my cigar shop yesterday who um, thought the beginning of the thing was fine, of my Friday G5 was fine, but he really loved the end of it. So maybe I'll leave it here on a sort of moment of moral clarity. Um, this was the end, spoiler alert, this is the end of last Friday's G-File. I think there's too much wish casting about how the invasion of Ukraine and the pro-Ukraine consensus will squash populism. I also think there's too much wish casting from those who think it won't. But one of the upsides of this utterly tragic and grotesque crisis is that a bunch of quote-unquote leaders who claim to be the authentic voice of the people or at least of the right people, have been exposed as essentially paper tigers. It turns out that even conservatives who were sympathetic to the largely abstract and theoretical arguments for admiring Vladimir Putin quickly abandoned any such sympathy the moment they saw, the moment they see who Putin really is. Some of the demagogues and strivers who thought they understood their own constituency are now scrambling to get right with reality and their own troops. And some are doubling down on their own irrelevance, scrambling to attain their own victim status as truth tellers amidst the time of hysteria. The only problem, they're not truth tellers. They're liars and frauds, and everyone can see it. In the blink of an eye, the same people who monetized and celebrated hysteria now pretend to be in favor of sober restraint. The task of rectifying the names is Herculean, and this sad chapter will not come close to completing the work. But in this moment, it is heartening to see the cobwebs of bullshit get cleared, at least for a moment. America is a good country. NATO isn't a sucker's game. The West is not a spent force. Russia does not offer a meaningful alternative to the American experiment. Volodymyr Zelensky's statesmanship proves that heroic leadership is possible and can come in surprising forms. Putin is evil, and people who claimed otherwise were either dupes or frauds. Military force in the face of evil is noble, and military force in the pursuit of evil is evil. Policy differences endure, as they should, but the reality of the situation is plain for people of goodwill to see. Truth is having a moment. It's a terrible price to pay for such rectification, but the value of it is something to be welcomed and built upon. All right, that's it. Forgive all the self-indulgence and sorry about rambling too much about liberal media bias. Um, I'm sure I'll hear from a bunch of people who say, I turned it off in the middle of liberal media bias, um, as is your right. Um, thanks for listening. Please, you know, give us a good review somewhere. Please become a member of the Dispatch. Um, and uh, keep hope alive, and I'll see you next time. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. That's great. Let's just do it.